0: Travel to another world, another time, in the age of wonder, the Dark Crystal.
1: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
0: And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with another movie episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind. I'm so excited about this one, Robert. What are we talking
1: about today? We're going to be talking about The Dark Crystal. Last month, it was Highlander 2. You know, I think a pretty... objectively terrible film mm-hmm. but this time we're talking about a film that that in my personal opinion is is a indeed a great film if not a perfect film
0: in the words of a good friend of mine who's uh, it is his favorite movie of all time He posits it is the most magical movie ever made. And I think I agree. There is no more magical film. There's also no film I can think of that is a more pure fantasy than The Dark Crystal. There are a lot of fantasy movies, but The Dark Crystal is is the most fully committed to a fantasy vision. It's a movie with no human beings in it.
1: Yeah, it it is a, a it's just a wonderful alien experience, but yet one that it, you know is it, it, it shadows the natural world that we we know. It shadows human mythologies and storytelling traditions, uh, and it really leads to just an, an overall uh, eloquent work. Um, to remind anyone who hasn't seen it, or to sort of introduce you to it, because uh, I, I I've spoken to people who have not seen the Dark Crystal. Uh, and I have to tell them about it. I have to serve as an ambassador for this film. Uh-huh. Uh, it came out in 1982, uh, directed by Jim Henson and Frank Oz, uh, written Kermit by, and Yoda. Yeah, Kermit and Yoda, written by uh, David Odell and uh, Jim Henson, and uh, the world and creature designs were created by the artist Brian Froud, and then and then brought to life uh, through uh, Henson's Creature Shop, and just the vast effort of just an an, an entire um, you know industry of people. Uh, there's a wonderful making of um, documentary that is generally included on most DVDs and Blu-rays uh, that you'll find of, uh, of The Dark Crystal. I highly recommend everyone watch that. In short, though, The Dark Crystal is a story of prophecy and reunification in a divided fantasy world. Uh, in a world that, uh, like you said, is almost entirely rendered via puppets. I mean... You, you'll see rocks, you know, mm-hmm. and, and maybe a few, you know, uh, you know, see some grass, et cetera, that sort of thing.
0: But sometimes the grass is a puppet.
1: That's right. Sometimes the, you know, the fauna, the flora, uh, all of it is is uh, realized with puppetry, uh, at least at some point in the film. The various creatures were designed through a superb fusion of. That uh, imaginative design from Brian Froud, inventive puppeteering and puppet design from Jim Henson's Creature Shop, and also the, the various professional physical performers such as dancers and still walkers. And I, you really can't overemphasize the the importance of these three things coming together because it's it's not enough that like the, the creature looks real, but does it move in a way that feels real? And then does it move in a way that doesn't feel like a human in a suit?
0: Yeah, uh, so it is— it is a beautifully designed film, and it, it's the kind of design that I love. You know, it was back before everything was CGI. It's puppets, mm-hmm. it's models, it's sets, it's painted backgrounds. God, I love painted backgrounds in oh, movies. Yeah. I would love to go back to that more often.
1: Yeah, it, it's a film that, that, that really could have only uh, occurred in 1982. It came at yeah. the perfect time because on one hand, like you said, if it had come out a little later – you would have had the the early CGI oh. uh, c- coming uh, coming into play. You
0: imagine that like Mortal Combat level <laughs> CGI,
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the
0: Dark Crystal.
1: Or or likewise, if it had been earlier, you might not have had the degree of um, of. of, of of technical know-how. Certainly the the, pu- the puppetry technology might yeah. not have been quite where it needed to be.
0: I would also say a thing that's remarkable about The Dark Crystal is the way that it seems to be a product of true collaborative evolution mm-hmm. because it seems like it's something that was originally kind of a rough concept and mythology dreamt up by Jim Henson who joined forces with Brian Froud and, and Brian Froud's type of creature designs. Brian Froud illustrated like giants and fairies and things like right. that. And And so his designs for creatures sort of fed back into Henson's ideas about the the story and the mythology. And then all this came together and got more definition when the performers came on board. It seems like a real ensemble creative project that was formed by a gradual accretion of mutations over many generations.
1: Yeah. And and a big part of that was that, like, there was money for this to happen. Yeah. And uh, I, I, you know, it's not a given that that would have been the case. (laughs) That's Muppet money. (laughs) It is Muppet money. Like, I believe part of the deal was, like, uh, you know, when it was financed, it was like, all right, you can make The Dark Crystal, but you got to make some Muppet movies as well. We need them, you know, and that we need to have the definite cash cows as well as this. This sort of long gamble at trying to um, cash in on the sort of, uh, you know, franchise um, uh, uh, dominance that you saw just a few years earlier with Star Wars. Yes,
0: and also I think it was pretty clear through The Empire Strikes Back that people were looking at The Dark Crystal and saying, hey, you know, Yoda, the puppet, he's very popular in The Empire Strikes Back. We We can make some puppet money with this Dark Crystal thing.
1: Now uh, arguably it may not have uh, reached the degree of financial achievement that they were that everyone was hoping for at the time but it has certainly become a beloved film a, 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 certainly a one with a, a very strong cult following um and uh, and, and today generally if you, you find people, if you ask somebody about the dark crystal sometimes you may get some people who are like oh I remember seeing that as a kid it was a little dark et etc and it does have some darker serious themes oh, in it oh yeah um but I, I don't think I've ever met anybody who who disliked the Dark Crystal, nor do I want to meet someone <laughs> who disliked the Dark Crystal because that's, pro- that's probably going to be a pretty big red flag for me that maybe we don't have a lot in common.
0: Yeah, if you don't like it, don't even bother writing in to tell us.
1: <laughs> no, no, you can. You can tell us. Uh, we're in, I'd be interested to hear your reasons. Okay, but why are we talking about the Dark Crystal today? For, well, for starters, we do like to chat about films on the show here and there, and they often give us the means to discuss various scientific, philosophical, or psychological concepts uh, that in some cases we might not otherwise cover. And with the Dark Crystal, well, I, th- I think there's, there's a lot to be said uh, about how it reflects aspects of our world and what we can see of planet Earth and human culture in the world of Thra.
0: Thra. so that's the planet they're on in the Dark Crystal. Or I don't know if they say pla- yeah. I guess it's a planet. It's their world.
1: Yeah, it gets kind of tricky when you start l- trying to apply the like the scientific lens to a world that is uh, to a to a, a pretty large degree realized through mythology. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's uh, it, we will get into some uh, um, ast- astronomical concepts. But for the most part, the world of The Dark Crystal is a world of of myth and magic.
0: Yeah, and also I will say, though I love The Dark Crystal and I'm a partisan of science, I will say it it is not – I don't know if it is a strongly pro-science narrative. Because you notice in the film, uh, basically science and technology seems to only exist among the bad guys and the – well, no, that's not quite true. There's Agra. Yeah, I'm overstepping. Well, and then the I would say the Skeksis have a scientist, but the 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 good mystics are more mystical in nature.
1: Yes, but then we have to consider where they came from. Mm. We'll, we'll get back to that in a bit. Okay. But uh, but those are those are aliens. Those are <laughs> that come to the world of Thra. Uh, we should talk for a little bit about the um, the native inhabitants of this world. Okay. Know? So, for, first and foremost, the Dark Crystal is the story of Gelflings.
0: Yeah, uh, it's it's a sort of hero's journey type narrative, yeah. a, a basic classic adventure narrative uh, with a with a young Gelfling at the core of it.
1: Yeah, t- two of them actually. We have uh, we start off with the male Gelfling uh, Jin, and then we meet a female Gelfling later on named Kira, and they are the the last two, or seemingly the last two members of their species. Mm-hmm. And we we come to learn that uh, that they were uh, that their people were hunted to extinction by the Skeksis in uh, in ages past, and
0: I guess we'll have to explain the Skeksis. We'll explain the skexies okay.
1: in a bit. But basically, the, their species is all but extinct. If we're to apply you know scientific understanding, I think we can safely say that they're extinct in the wild. Like the gene pool would be too shallow for them to repopulate the world mm-hmm. though in a mythological sense like the sort of adam and eve logic applies and they could conceivably bring everything back right but uh, but then also more to the point their culture is uh, is extinct Like the only thing we see of original Gelfling uh, culture we see in ruins because uh, Jin and Kira have each been raised by a different people. Uh, Jin has been raised by the mystics, the Uru, and then uh, Kira is raised by uh, the podlings, these sort of uh, uh, potato potato people people. that (laughs) live in huts and – and they, they dance do, about and have a good time. They do quite literally see, appear to have potatoes for heads. Yes, and were modeled uh, on potatoes.
0: Yeah, so they they live sort of underground. It makes sense. They're they're potato potato humans basically, little potato
1: people. Now, biologically, uh, one thing that is interesting about the Gelflings uh, is that uh, the males are wingless and the females have wings. Yeah. Otherwise, they're sort of basic. They're they're the most human characters in the film. They're kind of. Elf-like, thus the word gelfling, Mm -hmm. Uh, sort of, you know, elf-like humanoids. Uh, But the the wings are interesting because um, ultimately this would be an example of sexual dimorphism. Mm -hmm. And we see this kind of sexual dimorphism uh, a lot, say, in the insect world. You'll find examples of winged females and wingless males, uh, you know, bees, wasps, ants, sawflies, different types of beetles, uh, all boasting uh, morphological gender differences And the reasoning generally comes down to pure sexual economics. Uh, You know, for all intents and purposes, females are the species itself in most cases, uh, I mean all cases, and males exist as a biological variant necessary for sexual reproduction.
0: Yeah, they they basically, in a lot of these insect species, the males are just kind of there to mate and then not do much else.
1: I mean, for an extreme example, just consider there's a a particular type of fairy fly um, called uh, uh, Dicopomorpha agmectergis. And not only are they wingless compared to the winged females, but they're also blind and non-feeding.
0: Oh, they don't even have a working digestive system.
1: Yeah. yeah. Now, we don't see that in the Gelflings. Uh, the, but, uh, but at any rate, it's an interesting case where you can you can look at this fantasy example and see how it matches up with real-world biology. Uh, but in in these insect examples, the males exist only to breed. And uh, that breeding takes place uh, close to where they hatched, often with nest mates. So there's no need for them to disperse. Um, However, if we were to, you know, apply this to the gelflings, we might assume that male gelflings exist primarily to breed close to home while the females would have migrated to find new mates, produce new young, find new communities of gelflings, that sort of thing.
0: Uh, I don't know if we get much sense of that in the movie. No, Because it, it seems like uh, they're both long-lived at least, uh, that the, the Jen, Jen the boy gelfling ventures out.
1: Yeah, that's right. We do see that it's a reversal, that Jen is the one who ventures. And uh, and Kira is the one that is still remaining close to home. So, mm-hmm. so uh, you know, maybe that doesn't match up all that well.
0: Oh, I didn't mean to say it doesn't match at all. I mean, I just that I, I would say that the Gelflings perhaps are not insects, showing insect. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, another possibility would be that perhaps Kira still has wings, but they're and we, we see her sort of glide with them, but yeah. not really fly with them. Uh, perhaps they have more of a pure like mating display purpose. You know, like they're a, a, a show of fitness. Uh, reproductive fitness.
0: Well, in that case, I would think you'd be more likely to see them on the males.
1: That's true. This would be an inversion of the sexual dimorphism we typically see where the, the male is the one with the uh, with the fancy peacock feathers as opposed to the peahen. Uh, another bit of sexual dimorphism with the Gelflings is that, that Jin is um, a little bit taller. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that could be maybe Jin's a little older than Kira, but also it could just be like the, the sexual dimorphism of more of a sort of a, a warrior caste within the, the species. Mm-hmm. So... Okay. We can consider that as well, but basically the big difference is the wings, uh, and and uh, and uh, that kind of spoils a, a, a key moment in the film for people who haven't seen it. Uh, be, oh yeah, I because mean, it comes as a surprise to uh, to Jen as well.
0: I mean. I would say the experience of The Dark Crystal is not really about uh, learning what's going to happen. You can probably kind of predict the plot. It's mm-hmm. more about the experience of the world, the texture of it. Yeah. But we are going to continue to talk about the plot of the film today. So if you can't stand to have this, uh, the, this, this rather straightforward hero's journey kind of story spoiled, uh, I guess you should stop here. and Then come back after you've seen it.
1: All right. Well, another native species that uh, plays a, a pretty important role in the film – are the land striders. And this is this is my this is my son's favorite creature from the movie. Uh, and he he's always drawing these things. These are long-legged striding herbivores that are sometimes used by Gelflings as mounts and they're ferocious fighters when they have to be. They're kind of sweet looking but they can really put up a fight. Uh, they've got like pussycat whiskers and yeah. <laughs> funny looking eyes. They're great. Like most of the creatures in the Dark Crystal uh, designed by Froud here. It is kind of difficult to to put a real firm line on the on the hybridity that's going that's taking place. You know it's not just a case where oh, it's a tiger with a rabbit's head. No, it's more like there's a sense of a rabbit to it, but also the sense of an insect or a moth and also a giraffe and it's all swirled around in a way that feels familiar but also just distinctly alien. but we do see some 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 key uh, real-world animals uh, reflected in it, Uh Uh, most notably probably the giraffe. So uh, the giraffe, our real-world... land striders they can actually reach top speeds of 37 miles per hour but they can't really maintain it for long but their kicks are are no joke just as the the kicks of the land strider are seen uh, to be pretty devastating against their uh, their enemies mm-hmm. um, a, 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 an adult giraffe can kill a human or a lion if threatened and they've also been pretty effective at, at, at slinging their necks uh, certainly in fights against other giraffes
0: oh yeah long limb gives you a lot of leverage you mm-hmm. can you can really whack with that thing
1: there's also a, again a hint of the rabbit in the land strider anatomy and I've also read that Froud considered jumping spiders in designing them. So
0: that kind of makes sense. Yeah. They've got a kind of uh, the so they've got very long legs below but then they've got this hunched upper body that looks almost kind of like the the bunched up tiny body of a salticid spider. Yeah. Now I was thinking about like Animals like this, when you consider really long-legged animal body forms, you can think of quite a few reasons for animals to have long legs compared to the rest of their body. might be a defensive thing. You know, maybe they want like big – legs for, you know, a lot of leverage and kicking. Maybe they want to be able to move faster across short distances, longer mm. stride, longer legs. Uh, of course, though, long legs also come with downsides to fast movement. Uh, but another thing would be to reach farther or taller. That's a fairly simple one. But one really interesting example I came across of uh, animals with long leg-to-body ratios is for a totally different reason. Uh, the I want to look at the black-winged stilt or Hemanoptis Hemanoptis. This is a type of bird that's a very land strider to my eye. Uh, It's got these long, narrow legs with these kind of knobby joints, uh, and it walks around in the water. Uh, Hemanoptis is found all over the world, and they they walk around in the water pecking around for food. Uh, According to the British zoologist Mark uh, Carwardine, the black-winged stilt has the longest leg-to-body ratio of any bird on Earth. With an average body length of 35 to 40 centimeters and an average leg length of 17 to 24 centimeters, uh, the legs are usually about 60% or more of total body length.
1: I'm looking at a picture of one right now, and it, these are some long legs. Yeah. Like it's, it's a bit ridiculous looking.
0: Uh, But the question would be why? Like, do they need to reach up into trees? And the answer here is interesting. Instead, they're reaching down. The Hemanoptus bird is a wading forager, like Mm. wades around in water or mud, pecking down below to catch its prey. And the long legs allow the bird to walk around in water, pecking at prey, keeping their body up above the water and dry. And I guess if you want to do that, longer legs allow you to wade deeper.
1: Interesting, yeah, and in, uh, you know, in the Dark Crystal, the Landstrider does seem to be more of a like a purely terrestrial animal, mm. and, and it kind of so. There
0: are some swamps in the. Dark Crystal. There are a Crystal. lot of swamps,
1: so uh, you know, I, I don't know if anybody's ever really drawn a fine line on why they have long legs. Uh, I always kind of imagined that it was more like a draft; they needed to, re- to reach like high uh, hanging fruit or flowers or something uh, to chew on. But you could easily imagine one trooping through the swamp as well.
0: All right, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk about the wise woman of Thra Agra.
1: All right, we're back.
0: Uh, so everybody's got to have a favorite character in the Dark Crystal. It's kind of hard for your favorite character not to be Agra.
1: Agra is pretty great. Like she's she's commanding. She's powerful. She's wise. She grunts a lot. Yeah. She you know,
0: Like every there are great scenes where she like sits down and releases this powerful groan of discomfort as she does so.
1: Yeah, I've, I've seen interviews, old interviews, where Frank Oz describes her as being, you know, she's that she's so ugly she's beautiful that yeah. she's there's this there's this grotesque gorgeous quality to her uh uh-huh.
0: she uh she can detach her eye and hold it in her hand to see around mm-hmm. with
1: it yeah she has uh i believe she she has like sort of goat uh cur- curled goat horns um uh, coming out of her head and she has what looks like a parietal eye uh, where a third eye would be yeah um, you know kind of like you see in say lizards and in uh, various species uh, so she, too, is this kind of thing that seems like a hybrid of all these different forms, though she's largely humanoid. Uh, we we only learn so much about her in the actual film, but there's a wonderful book that came out um, by Brian Froud uh, titled The World of the Dark Crystal.
0: It's magical. This is one of the best illustrated books ever. And it, so it's um, – It is presented as if it is a – like an academic translation and gloss on an ancient – Text That's been discovered. And that mm-hmm. ancient text is the Book of Agra. So it, it takes as a, like a fact as if, you know, the stuff that happened in the Dark Crystal is like a mythology from a long ago existing culture. And Agra is the author of this mythology. And then it's been translated by a, by a fictional scholar, I think named Llewellyn.
1: Right, with, with various uh, academic asides uh, uh, dismantling what's happening there. Yeah. But, but we learned it, it's really a wonderful book, not only because it's filled with Froud's uh, production art and designs, but it's yeah, it's just so weird, too, because it could have just been that, right? It could have just been, hey, uh, my name's Brian Froud, uh, and I worked on this movie called The Dark Crystal. Here, here's some of the, the pictures. Uh-huh. No, it's this, this, this utterly weird and magical and one-of-a-kind uh, book. Uh, but but in it, yeah, we hear a lot more about Agra, where she came from. We get a, more of a sense of the the backstory on the world of Thra. Uh, but we learn that she's something like a, an earth elemental, that mm-hmm. she's like a being that rises up out of the stones and the roots of the world so that the world can have voice and that the world can witness what's happening. Yeah. And, uh, and then she loses one of her eyes when uh, the Great Conjunction occurs. Uh, but we'll get more into that later on.
0: Yeah. Now, one of the cool things about Augra is that she's sort of an astronomer, astrologer type, right? She she mm-hmm. has – in her laboratory, she has like a big observatory on the top of a mountain. And within it, there is an orrery. And I love a good orrery. Mm-hmm. So uh, an orrery is basically a mechanical model of the movement of celestial objects, usually of the planets in the solar system. And these have been constructed based on various astronomical models throughout history. They became very popular in the early modern period to represent the heliocentric model of the solar system. A standard orrery would operate by orbiting physical objects around based on a clockwork mechanism timed to simulate a ratio of the actual orbital periods. And of course, because the mechanisms that generate the movements were approximate, the known orries are basically all to some degree inaccurate. You you might have heard, though, of like – classic examples of these things that are very ahead of their time, like the ancient Greek astronomical computer from the 2nd century BCE known as the Antikythera mechanism. Mm. Uh, This was discovered in a shipwreck around the turn of the 20th century, but it was a couple thousand years old. And it's essentially an analog computer that computed the future positions of celestial objects by way of differently sized gears that would spin at different rates and show you where the objects would be at at different points in the future. And this kind of thing showed up again in the early modern period where you'd have these orreries that were generally clockwork. You'd, you know, have like uh, somebody would work out all the details of how to put it together and you'd have a, a clockwork solar system spinning around. Now we have highly accurate digital or- orreries based on software. So I guess that's actually a little bit less fun even if it's more accurate. But one interesting thing when constructing an accurate orrery is that Augra faces a problem we don't. We have a solar system that is, by comparison, very easy to predict the future positions of. Augra's solar system has three suns, and we'll return to this later.
1: That's right. It's key to the the plot because uh, when these three suns align, it uh, it creates the great conjunction, Mm -hmm. which uh, has tremendous uh, mystical properties in this film.
0: You know, I'd never wondered this before, but is pitch black sort of a, a takeoff on the dark crystal?
1: Is there a great conjunction in yeah, Pitch Black? It's remember, been so long since I've seen it.
0: It's on this hot planet where the suns are always yeah. shining, but there's there's like a predicted, a prophesied uh, conjunction when uh, like all the suns will suddenly be hidden. This almost never happens because there are multiple suns. Oh, uh, and then yes. the planet will go dark and then all the monsters can come out because they can they can't tolerate the sunlight.
1: That's right. That's right.
0: I thought you were up on your Riddick movies.
1: I'm, I'm more of a Chronicles of Riddick guy. Oh, so sure. I've, I've seen that one a, like a couple of times. – I've only seen the original one first.
0: I only watched Pitch Black because you told me to. <laughs>
1: oh, did you move on to Chronicles of Riddick too? I haven't yet. Oh, that's the only reason to watch Chronicles – the only reason to watch uh, uh Pitch Black is so you can watch Chronicles of Riddick.
0: I don't know. Pitch Black was kind of trash, but I sort of liked it.
1: it. No, it's it has cool monsters in it and uh, it has some, some – I don't want to trash it because it does have, again, really cool monsters, and I think it 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 did some stuff really well. But then Chronicles of Riddick came along, and it's just even more over the top. It's like more <laughs> of like a Flash Gordon for me. Okay, well
0: I'll I'll see it. I'll see it this time. Okay,
1: all right. But back to the Dark Crystal. Okay. So one of the things I uh, was we just talking about the mystical nature of the um, of the Great Conjunction in mm-hmm. this world. So this is how we end up getting the Erskes. Okay. Now, the Erskeks are a being that we don't encounter in the film till the very end, mm-hmm. but and there's a lot more information about what they were and where they came from in the world of the Dark Crystal, the book.
0: They look kind of a bit like uh, creepy pagan ghosts with like uh, like wicker crowns, or they look kind of like uh, when you see the images of the the nine kings in the Lord of the Rings movies, yeah. like as ghosts in the shadow realm that uh, you can only see when you put the ring on. They're they're like that.
1: Yeah, like all the things in the all the other things in the film. There is this wonderful synthesis, right, of all these these things coming together, so that, that it feels familiar and yet alien at the same time mm. so it does feel like an extraterrestrial or like an angel or, or some sort of pagan spirit being but it is also unique and so uh, we learn that these are the the Erskeks, or more specifically the fallen erskx who came to the planet uh, thra to exploit the properties of the great crystal there and uh, in the world of the dark crystal it's written that they arrived during a past great conjunction and the great conjunctions occur every 1,000 trine, which we assume is something like a year. Uh-huh. So 1,000 trines, 1,000 years, roughly. Uh, but when the Great Conjunction occurred, it allowed for them to open a door through the crystal, some sort of a stargate, kind of like in 2001, a space odyssey, I assume. Uh, their home world had a crystal as well, but they, it was unsuitable for the work that they wished to pursue. And so against the advice of their fellow Erskeks, they traveled to the world of Thra and they set up their operations there where the crystal uh, serves as kind of a metacrystal. And so you had 18 Erskeks and they constructed this great castle around the crystal on Thra and they began manipulating its power. Mm-hmm. So they're users of high technology and uh, and they're uh, you know seemingly... Um, at, at least benign if not uh, benevolent uh, species they seem to get along well with the existing species they form a relationship with the gelflings they form a relationship with agra uh, in fact they teach agra uh, a bit about technology mm. and the and their use of crystals uh, but despite being these splendid, angelic beings full of brilliance and possibility, they also recognized that that inside themselves there was this duality. There was this disharmony in their souls of darkness and light. And so what they decided to do, what they, they set out to do with the crystal, was to purify themselves, to expunge their darker natures. And as they tried this during a great conjunction— uh, they managed to sever themselves. They divided themselves into two beings. Ah. And then subsequently, the, the crystal was cracked.
0: So that's where you are in the movie. Uh, or actually, this, the movie is like a thousand trine or a thousand years after this. Right. When you've these, – these two beings are now completely separate. Right. And you have the the Uru, also known as the mystics in the movie, who are these very, very sweet, gentle, you know, gentle dinosaur, gentle-friendly brontosaurus. Uh type creatures. I don't want to knock them. I mean, the mystics are great. but
1: Oh, yeah, they're wonderful. They're There's certainly a, a dinosaur sense to them. There's kind of a Galapagos turtle sense to them. Yeah. A slow calmness. They also have a sense, I think, of uh, there's like an equine quality to their heads. Mm-hmm. So you get this, this herbivore vibe to them as well. But they are, yeah, they're very zen-like. They're, 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 they're drawn to prophecies and spirals and, uh, and they're connected with the natural world.
0: And these are the ones that raise the hero of the film, the young gelfling, Jen. Right. Now, but then you've also got the villains of the movie, the the bad halves of of what the Orskex, and these are the Skexies or the Skeksis.
1: Yeah, so these are vile, ruthless, greedy, uh, also six limbed creatures. We often uh, it's easy to to not pick up on this, uh, but we see later that they do have an extra pair of arms that have atrophied. Hmm. Uh, but anyway, they are. They are completely awful. They <laughs> they squander and pervert the science of the Erskeks for their own personal gain. They're technologists, but they're also exploiters. So, yeah. uh, you know, they end up uh, working with the Gelflings for a while, but then eventually they're uh, they're, uh, they're they're capturing the Gelflings. They're enslaving the Gelflings. They enslave the Pod people. Uh, so they're just nasty to the core. They all they hate everything. They hate each other. They hate themselves. And. Uh, I guess in in appearance, they mostly resemble humanoid birds, especially raptors, and also crocodilians.
0: One of the things we read preparing for this was in a book you lent me, Robert, called – well, not the book was called, but the essay – In it was by uh, Catriona Macara called A Natural History of the Dark Crystal, the Conceptual Design of Brian Froud. And in this essay, it's mentioned that the Skeksis, in addition to being inspired by reptilian features and predatory bird features and classic attributes of the dragon, they may also be based in part on anglerfish.
1: Huh, interesting.
0: But clearly the predatory bird, like the vulture aspect and the crocodile aspect Mm. are there. And Hinson was reportedly inspired in dreaming up the world of the dark crystal when he was first thinking about the idea of the Skeksis. He was inspired by an illustration he saw in the 1970s. I think it was in 1975 of – crocodiles like being posh in a fancy Victorian washroom <laughs> and this illustration was by a uh, an artist named Leonard Lubin and it was uh, accompanying a uh, some printings of a Lewis Carroll poem but in this illustration I, I found a copy of it and it's like one crocodile is in a fancy bathtub with its tail sticking out with a rubber ducky and another one is like uh, being, being toweled off in a graceful
1: <laughs> way yeah. it's a uh... You know, again, it probably doesn't, it's not, you know, super helpful exercise to apply too much of the natural world to the Skeksis, especially since they are not even presented as a uh, a naturally evolved species. They're born out of a mystical division. Mm -hmm. Uh, And yet, if you try to, if when you try to imagine, like, what would a culture be like if it was... If it, it, it consisted of more solitary creatures mm-hmm. that are more, uh, you know, in, that are that are more competitive and less cooperative, yeah. what might that be like? Uh, you know, it's interesting to to wonder to, to what extent the skeksis are a realization of that. Yeah,
0: I mean, you can see some kind of social-ish looking behaviors in in. Some birds and reptiles, but if I was thinking about a, a more selfish kind of creature, a less uh, social kind of creature, yeah, I wouldn't think like mammalian features right
1: uh, but again, with the with the mystics and the skexes, they both represent a, a one side of the same being mm-hmm. and ultimately they're supposed to represent uh you know two sides of human nature. the idea being that the Earth-skex represent balance uh the oru uh, are you know are, it's it's the the noble human, the human that is uh uh, you know, at one with his natural environment uh, and peaceful, whereas the Skeksis are awful and exploitive and petty.
0: The disgustingness of the Skeksis absolutely comes through in the design of the puppets. And it actually even came through for the people working with them because Makara points out in, uh, in her essay – that uh, the costumes and the puppets of the Skeksis became more and more genuinely disgusting as work for the film went on, like as production <laughs> w- went over time. She quotes one person who who worked on the production who said that the, uh, the 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 Skeksis puppets came more and more to consist of quote rotten rubber permeated with cold KY jelly and putrefying noodles. <laughs>
1: yeah, it's it's something that's easy to. to to, uh, to to overlook in uh, when you consider the costumes like this and puppets like this is that they were never they weren't built to last, mm-hmm. and that's why when you go somewhere like Atlanta's own Center for Puppetry Arts and you see the um, the examples of Skeksis and uh, and Uru and various other um, uh, uh, creatures from the film that have, that are presented there and, and on display, like everything had to be res- restored mm-hmm. uh, before it was suitable for a public display again. Uh, And by the way, uh, if you haven't been to the Center for Puppetry Arts in Atlanta, I highly recommend it to anyone visiting our city here. You can find out more about it at puppet.org. And through September 1st, 2019, uh, Jim Henson's The Dark Crystal World of Myth and Magic is going on. It is a fabulous uh, presentation of the various props and designs that you see in the film.
0: Yeah, they have like some full puppets from the movie. They've got an Agra, when I was there at least. They had Agra, they had uh, one of the Skeksis, they had one of the Mystics, they had a bunch of other stuff, uh, like Landstrider puppets. It it, it was wonderful.
1: Yeah, and even if you don't make it by September 1st, uh, they have a lot of Dark Crystal stuff in the permanent Henson exhibit as well.
0: Oh, in fact, one of the things they have, I believe, in the permanent exhibit is Robert... Do you hear a scuttling?
1: What is that scuttling sound? It's the Gartham, yes. So the Gartham all
0: podcasters killed by Gartham. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I hadn't thought about that. We're kind of we're kind of pod people, aren't we? Um, <laughs> in, in, in some sense. So yes, the Gartham are those fabulous scuttling giant crab-like monstrosities, mm-hmm. and uh, and they're essentially a, a, an engineered weapon species of the Skeksis. Yeah, the Skeksis are you know decrepit, cowardly, nasty creatures. They, they don't are, fight
0: their own battles. Yeah,
1: they're not going to fight their own battles. They they need to make something to go out. There and wage their wars against the Gelflings and the Pod people and to and and so forth. And so they make these things. Um, yeah, they're they're massive guardians and soldiers. And they they look like a mixture of beetle and crab anatomies, though closer inspection reveals them to be kind of like bipeds with supporting tentacle-like appendages. Uh, and part of that is kind of like the illusion of the puppetry. But the, the thing about the puppetry in The Dark Crystal is like even, even when you see how something works, mm-hmm. like the facade is still so perfect. Yeah. Um, one arm of the Gartham terminates in a vicious crab pincher, and the other has like a fingered claw for snatching up prisoners. Yeah.
0: Uh, so in his introduction to the world of the Dark Crystal, I thought this was so funny and so interesting. Brian Froud was talking about the process of, of coming up with the concepts and the designs for the movie. And Froud mentions that he often drew inspiration before m- the movie from walking in nature when he designed creatures. You know, mm-hmm. he would do illustrations, and he'd go out and walk in nature and look at trees and rocks and animals. Uh, But he was working on the Dark Crystal in New York City and didn't have much access to unspoiled countryside to go look at trees and rocks and animals. Uh, So he said, you know, maybe you could sort of go to Central Park, but it wasn't quite the same. So instead, he said he would end up taking inspiration from wherever he could find it, including by the natural forms he found in his food. (laughs) So he said he uh, he and others went out to a dinner where they ate lobster and then Froud was inspired to take all the lobster shells home with them <laughs> and uh, this became partial inspiration for the shells and the exoskeleton of the gartham and also for the the carapace of the skexes
1: oh yeah because they have these elaborate costumes that make them look uh, grander than they actually are
0: yeah uh, but you can kind of see it there like in the in the carapace of the skexes you can kind of see like a a plated overlapping plated lobster tail kind of thing except it's really craggy and nasty and you can definitely see the the lobster shells as they came through through in the gartham
1: yeah um so you know a couple of things to sort of uh, take apart with the the gartham here uh I, I believe it's mentioned in the world of the dark crystal that they're they're sort of a symbol out of the memory of ancient sea creatures yeah uh, which is something we'll get get back to in a minute uh-huh. uh, and then um uh, McAra, uh, who uh, again wrote uh, a natural history of the dark crystal, the conceptual design of Brian Froud, uh, she speculates that the Gartham may actually exist as a thought projection of the Skeksis, because like when a the, tulpa. Yeah, because when they're, um when when the Skeksis power is broken, the Gartham kind of vanish, or at least they the their internal um, uh, biology vanishes, and the the shell plating just falls like empty armor. Mm-hmm. But. Um, uh, you know, I was looking, looking, uh, reading a little bit about just like shells and um, and claws and weaponry, and I I came back to an excellent book by Douglas J. Imlin titled "Animal Weapons: The Evolution of Battle." And uh, uh, one of the, the the key things in this is that he's you know he's comparing uh, the evolution of various biological weapons to uh, actual uh, you know man-made weapons and and and, and tools of war that mm-hmm. humans create. And uh, he points out that, you know, muscles are expensive to maintain even when they're resting. And males with big claws require the most muscle. And, of course, he's just talking about natural world fiddler crabs here. But when we look at something like the Gartham, like, that's an enormous uh, uh, creature. You know, it uh-huh. would have to— if it were depending on a on an actual diet and it wasn't just sustained through like vile Skeksis thoughts or some sort of mystical crystal powers, uh, it would have to eat a lot. It would be expensive to maintain.
0: Now, you do see the Skeksis feasting in the movie
1: quite disgustingly.
0: Oh, yes. they, there's a great <laughs> feasting scene where they've got stuff hanging out of their mouths. Yeah, I don't recall ever seeing the Gartham eat.
1: yeah. Uh, and the th- and maybe they don't, uh, you know, it's hard to hard to be sure. But uh, one thing you can think of, it's like, OK, if they are expensive to maintain uh, just, you know, th- through crystal power or feeding them a bunch of uh, meat garbage or whatever the Skeksis are doing, you could easily compare that to uh, the sort of weapons programs that humans have. So uh, and this is, you know, one of the key things that um, – uh, that he gets the author gets into in animal weapons that uh, Imlin discusses. For instance, you could compare the Gartham to uh, the U.S. Air Force B two stealth bomber, built at a reported cost of 2.1 billion per plane, and requiring 50 to 60 hours of ground maintenance for every one hour in the air. And uh, and that's not even taking into account uh, upgrade efforts. Uh, so contractors uh, Northrop Grumman, current uh, at least uh, previously held a 9.9 billion dollar contract to complete maintenance and modernization of the 20 plane uh, fleet. Fleet that was uh, from a, a few years back. But it just gives you an idea of just like the colossal cost of not only creating some sort of a weapon but also maintaining it. And that would be part of having an army of Gartham as well. Mm-hmm. But clearly it's a price that the the Skeksis were willing to pay. And, uh, you know, it almost works for them. They're able to use the Gartham to, uh, you know, wage this war of extinction against the Gelflings and uh, rid the world of all but at least two of them.
0: Now, is the reason they do that because there is a prophecy that the Skeksis will be undone by Gelfling hand, or else by
1: none? Exactly. Yeah, that's their whole reason. It, it, this is a great, you know, mythic storytelling trope, right? There's this prophecy, and therefore they're going to act on this prophecy and try and rid the world of those that will undo them. But then perhaps it's a self fulfilling prophecy, like they have right. they have set things in motion for their own downfall.
0: Well, it's also a great example of uh, the destructive power of, a, of an unquestioned religious dogma.
1: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, well, let's take one more break. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about Gartham and crystal organisms before we, re- we return to the problem of a world with three suns.
0: All right, we're back. So the dark crystal, as we mentioned a minute ago, has a couple of organisms that seem to have at least partially crystalloid biology. Uh, at least they have crystals for eyes or use crystals to see. It's mentioned in a couple sources that the Gartham have crystals for eyes. And you can see this in some up-close representations of them. It seems that their eyes have sort of, uh, uh, you know, uh, polygon-type surfaces on them. Uh, they, they might be, be actual, I don't know, pieces of dark crystal or something mm-hmm. like that in there.
1: Oh, yeah, like we it's explained especially in the world of the dark crystal that the Skeksis you know they're not only continuing to experiment with the dark crystal itself mm. uh, the the, um, uh, the imperfect great crystal but they're also creating like their own knockoff crystals and doing other things with crystals and the, so seemingly also uh, incorporating them into their weapon species.
0: They're doing all kinds of nasty crystal technology yeah. and some of this is nasty crystal biotechnology. So the Garthim have crystals for eyes and there are also these spy beasts in the movie called the crystal bats Mm. who fly around doing aerial surveillance and looking with their crystals that that appears to be their video recorder lens or their eyes. Now, obviously, this seems far-fetched. You wouldn't expect, well, maybe there are actually organisms that have (laughs) crystals for eyes. But as we discover pretty much every time reality is weirder than fiction, there are creatures on this very world with minerals and crystals for eyes. And I had to talk about this for a few minutes.
1: Yeah, this floored me that you were able to, to get so much out of the crystal bats. I figured the crystal bats are like the least biological creatures in the whole movie, and yet here we go. Let's have a look at a
0: creature called a chitin. Now, a chitin is a form of a marine mollusk. They're generally small, they're flat, they're oval-shaped, kind of like a flat slug or snail with a protruding foot on the underside for attaching to surfaces on the seafloor and moving along those surfaces while they scrape up food in the form of algae or other clinging biomatter. But on its back, the chitin wears a suit of armor. It has a shell made out of tough plates, which face up towards the sea as it crawls along a rock, lapping up delicious slime with its radula. Now, you might suspect that a small, algae-scraping, rock-crawling sea dweller like the chitin is maybe simply blind, right? What does it need eyes for, to look down at the rocks below it as it scrapes up stuff to eat? But they do appear to have eyes on their backs, on those protective shells, the armor part. They've got hundreds of little beady, light-sensitive organs spaced about on their dorsal armor called ocelli. Now, scientists have known about these ocelli for years. They've known about these organs for sensing light. But they didn't know much about them, what they were made of, how they worked— Essentially, what we knew for a long time was that the chitins had these organs with underlying light-sensitive cells, like a retina, and some form of lens material. Now, a few years back, a marine biologist named Dan Spicer conducted research on a chitin known as the West Indian fuzzy chitin, which is the cuddliest
1: of all chitins. <laughs> it, it sounds kind of like an off-brand Muppet, I have to say. Sounds kind of like a fizz gig. Yeah.
0: Uh, So Spicer was studying the lenses on the ocelli of these animals, the the little light-sensing organs on their backs. And in an attempt to clean these ocelli, these lenses off for observation in an acidic solution, the lenses suddenly dissolved. And this was a tip. Tip off that the lenses were not protein-based like you would find in pretty much all other organisms. Instead, these lenses were made of a mineral called aragonite – the chitins had mineral crystals for eyes. Wow! Aragonite is a form of calcium carbonate. It's the material that forms the shells of most mollusks. So it had lenses for its eyes that were made out of the same stuff that its armor is made out of, that its shell is made out of. And Spicer, along with Earnis and uh, Johnson – published uh, a a paper about chitin and aragonite lenses in Current Biology in 2011. So the the chitin uses these eyes to detect when shadows pass overhead. That would be a signal that there's like a predator near. Mm. And when this happens, the chitins flatten out their bodies and clamp their armored shells down over their soft parts – the crystallized don't appear to see in great detail, but they can apparently distinguish dark moving shapes from a mere dimming of raw light levels. Now, when you've got rocks for eyes, of course they can be eroded by water over the time. But I was <laughs> over time, but I was reading about uh, how apparently one benefit of having rocks for eyes is that they are less vulnerable to the you know the, the violent washing of the tide or intertidal areas.
1: Yeah, it's like they their eyes have armor. Yeah. But what do you do when your eyes erode?
0: Yeah, well, you uh, so as if you have rocks for eyes, what you do is you gradually replace them with more crystals. So ah. the chitons would grow new crystal lenses to replace the old ones that would get eroded over time. And it seems that organisms with crystals for eyes are pretty rare in today's biosphere but there are other exa- there are other examples so crystals appear in various forms suspended within otherwise protein-based eyes of other creatures right so there are other creatures that might not quite have crystals for eyes, like rocks as the lenses of their eyes, but might have some kind of crystal somewhere in there. One example I was reading about in a book called Animal Eyes from Oxford University Press by Michael F. Land and Dan Eric Nielsen is about spiders. Specifically, these would be Lycosids or wolf spiders— Wolf spiders have some crystal structures inside their eyes. These are uh, specialized eyes, usually the the lateral eyes, used for locating prey in low light. And to sense in low light, they have a wide aperture, so they let a lot of light in, but they also have a reflecting tapetum, kind of like you see in a cat when its eyes shine back at you in the dark. The wolf spider has something similar. Now, what does the tapetum actually do? Apparently, it serves to increase the sensitivity of the retina in low-light conditions by sitting behind the retina and reflecting light back in the direction of the source through the retina again, maintaining the visual features of the image while increasing the amount of light available to the light-sensitive cells. some that makes sense. Like, so there's low light. Mm-hmm. So you put a mirror behind the area that's sensing the light, and by reflecting it back through that area, you sort of get – you get a couple tries. You get extra ways of sensing the low amounts of light. But in lycosids, these tapita the, behind the eyes consist of, quote, many layers of very thin crystals, probably guanine crystals, which form a long ribbon beneath the receptors. So that's pretty interesting on its own, but it's not even the only organism that uses guanine crystals in order to see with, uh, to look at another mollusk, reflective guanine crystals are also important in the light-sensitive organs of scallops. Scallops, mm. like the kind you eat.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, research shows that scallops use a reflective mirror made of guanine crystals instead of a transparent lens to focus light onto their retinas. And I've attached a little picture of what these crystals look like. They, they form these layers of plates almost.
1: Yeah, it looks like uh, like plate mail.
0: Kind of like dinosaur scales.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I guess more accurate. Scale male, if I was going to use the, the more <laughs> fitting uh, um, uh, the term there.
0: But to get even weirder and to connect to the dark crystal in a weirder way, I want to go into the deep past. Because if you go into the deep past, you can find even more crazy examples of crystallize. The trilobites, Ooh. the trilobites of the Cambrian period, which you know began roughly 500 million years ago, the trilobites of this period had lenses on their eyes that were literally made of calcite crystals. The trilobites had rocks for eyes. Oh wow! And this, uh, of course, the the calcite crystals that form these lenses were. This is another form of calcium carbonate stone eyes, and the lenses were amazingly powerful by the protein based standards we're familiar with today. They were they were seen the world through crystal prisms, as described in a feature by the American Museum of Natural History, quote, this provided these ancient creatures with virtually unparalleled vision that we can assume, thanks to recent experiments conducted with calcite crystals, was filled with streams of light and bursts of color.
1: Oh, wow. So the the Cambrian seas were just a... A uh, you know a, a psychedelic fire show for these these creatures <laughs> on some level.
0: Yeah, if only we could see the world like these ancient bugs that had crystals for eyes.
1: <laughs> yeah, and again, this is this is fitting because it is uh, mentioned in the world of the dark crystal that the the, Skek, the skeksis kind of summon the form of the Gartham out of the memories of long dead sea life.
0: Yes, I love that. That's exactly what I was thinking about. So the trilobites, the inhabitants of this ancient unseen world are known to us only through fossils from about 500 million to about 250 million years ago. And like the lost prehistoric world quality of the, the dark crystal mythology. Yeah. In fact, I wanted to take this connection even farther. Tell, tell me if I'm getting too wild
1: here. But no, you can't get too wild. Not in a dark <laughs> crystal episode.
0: So one idea is thinking, I was thinking about is that the trilobites' mineral eyes are the first complex eyes we really find in the fossil record. Uh, They were part of the Cambrian Explosion, which is when animal bodies suddenly showed this massive diversity and uh, these fascinating and complex and fast-moving forms. These eyes are a wonder of evolution, but they might also be a signal of something important changing in the animal world. Why did animals suddenly need powerful calcite eyes, crystal eyes? Well, one theory about this is that it's because of the explosion of predation. Mm -hmm. We live in a world in which predation evolved, in which animals – kill and eat each other, which plenty of mythological traditions see as a key indicator of some kind of fallen or corrupted state of the world, kind of like the shattering of the crystal and the dark crystal and the sundering of the Erskex, uh, which which in the mythology gives rise to the Gartham and the crystal bats.
1: Interesting, yeah. So crystal vision on both counts emerging out of an age of conflict.
0: How about it? Look up those those trilobite eyes. It's amazing.
1: All right. Well, let's let's return to the bigger picture here. Let's let's talk about the three sun system, the three star system that we see uh, with the world of Thra. Okay. So Thra, the planet depicted in the crystal in the dark crystal, uh, is a three star system. It's 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 key to the whole uh, narrative about the uh, great conjunction occurring. And the three suns are described as the Great Sun, the Dying Sun, and the Rose Sun. And Mm. we see these images of these suns moving through the sky. Um, It's difficult, you know, and perhaps kind of a fool's errand to try and work out exactly what stage uh, each of these suns uh, happens to be in. I've I've seen it speculated that the Great Sun is a giant sun, and that the Dying Sun is a a gas giant or a protostar, and then the Rose Sun is a red dwarf, but really you could you could kind of go a number of different directions in interpreting like what stage each star is is in
0: uh, that might make sense in light of something I'll I'll get back to in just a minute here
1: now likewise it it might ultimately be um a bit silly to to really get too worked over up over the exact celestial mechanics of all of this. I mean, for instance, given the mythological nature of many themes in the movie, we might be dealing with more of a a, a Ptolemaic universe here with the three suns orbiting Thra. Uh Uh, You know, there's no reason that wouldn't be the case. It's a mythological world. Right. uh, however, when we look to the world of The Dark Crystal, that, that book uh, of Brian Froud's, uh, there is this, uh, this fabulous little bit of commentary that is supposedly from the, um, the anthropologist or the academic that is commenting on everything. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is what they say of the three stars of Thra. Quote, in a system with three suns, astronomical calculations would be intolerably complex. Newtonian or Einsteinian physics can deal exactly with two bodies, Earth and sun, or Earth and moon. But more complex cases can be solved only by successive approximations. With three suns, even the elementary calculations needed to begin our studies of the skies are beyond our scope. Agra's astronomy, therefore, is devised chiefly through intuition and empirical models. So this is a reference to a very real problem in the study of celestial mechanics that I think we've discussed on Stuff to Blow Your Mind before, uh, at least in passing, the three-body problem. Right. If
0: So if you're dealing with, uh, say, velocity or momentum and, and gravity, you can easily predict the future states of two objects orbiting each other. Mm-hmm. Once you throw another object into the mix there, especially if it's, you know, of a similar uh, mass, the interactions become increasingly... Uh, Chaotic and sensitive to tiny – to like tiny variations and it becomes harder and harder to predict uh, a future state from the current state. Now, I was looking into this because I was like, well, are, are there really triple star systems? Like, does that exist in reality? Mm-hmm. What would that look like? And triple star systems do exist, though they can, in some cases, become dynamically unstable, meaning that uh, they might eject one of the stars from the system through their interactions. Uh, but a common form of a more stable triple star system is that there is essentially a core binary star system, which means two stars more closely orbiting a shared center of gravity. And then you'd have a third star much farther away or orbiting that center of gravity. And this even almost sort of goes with the great sun, dying sun, rose sun thing. Like uh, I wonder if maybe your great sun and your dying sun, the the bigger closer ones, are orbiting each other. That's a binary star system. And then you've got a little, little red dwarf or rose sun that's way farther out that's orbiting the whole system.
1: Yeah, I think that would make sense.
0: Now, it would be another question entirely whether in reality a planet like Thra could exist. I mean, not necessarily like Thra, but a planet of any kind. Right, could exist in a triple star system or would it just be automatically, you know, pretty quickly ejected or destroyed due to the chaotic influences of gravity from a three star system? Right.
1: Would there be enough stability there at all, certainly for life to emerge?
0: I just assumed the answer was no. I was like, that's probably not going to happen. But I was actually surprised uh, what I found here. I was reading an article about this on astronomy.com by Amber Jorgensen, which was about the work of uh, a few scholars, uh, Franco Bassetti of the School of Computer Science and Applied Mathematics at the University of uh, Wits in South Africa. Also, Cherise Harley of Wits and uh, Hervé Boust at University of Grenoble Alps in France. So, Busetti and colleagues here conducted simulations which found that planets could survive in appreciable numbers in systems like this. So, Busetti says, quote, Because of the complex dynamics between these stars and planets, it was previously thought improbable that many planets would have stable orbits in these regions. But – They found evidence to the contrary. Quote, we ran the simulations for periods ranging from 1 million to 10 million years in order to see if the systems are stable over very long periods. If a planet is ejected from that system during that time, it is not stable. The analysis showed that most configurations had large enough stable regions for planets to exist. Many of these areas are actually very habitable for planets. And they even mapped out areas of the galaxy where double and triple star exoplanets are likely to be found in stable orbits. So it is actually possible. It the, There might be really bad places to be mm-hmm. within the orbit of a, of a three-star system, but there could be types of triple-star systems that could have stable planetary orbits within them where at least presumably life could
1: thrive. So there might be a Thra out there is what you're saying. There yeah. could be a world. Scientists have
0: discovered Thra.
1: It really exists.
0: <laughs> and uh, we're sending a mission there right now. <laughs>
1: Um in terms of things that really exist it is worth noting that th- there is a real great conjunction. So the um the, the 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 conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn is sometimes referred to as the great conjunction and it takes place every 18 to 20 years. And there's a there's a fair amount of astrological uh, uh speculation about them, shall we say, especially concerning political assassinations and how they seem to line up selectively, of course, uh, with great conjunctions throughout history. Uh, The last one took place on May 31st, 2000, while the next one will take place in late December 2020. Now, as usual, we don't put a lot of stock. We don't put any stock in uh, astrological predictions like this. Mm -hmm. Uh, Ultimately, whatever the astrological pattern is, if if you cherry pick enough, you can find some sequence of events on Earth that match up with it.
0: The planets don't influence your dating life, folks. I'm sorry.
1: (laughs) All right, so there you have it. This has been fun, Robert. Yeah, The Dark Crystal. There's a lot to discuss there. And I I was legitimately surprised by some of the places it it took us. Um, But uh, but hopefully we have, uh, you know, maybe even enhanced uh, everyone's enjoyment of The Dark Crystal a little bit. Or if nothing else, given you a, a good reason to go out and watch a great film one more time.
0: And to wish you had crystal eyes. (laughs) That's right. Anytime you hear one of those uh, rock songs or pop songs about touching eyes, think think like uh, spiky crystals for
1: eyes. Yeah, clinking against each other. Yeah. Um, well, cool. Uh, obviously, I know we have a lot of uh, listeners out there who uh, have thoughts about The Dark Crystal and are Dark Crystal fans. Uh, some of you may be very steeped in The Dark Crystal and have read like the novelizations and the comic books and the sort of the extended universe of the thing. And perhaps you have additional insight you'd like to share. Perhaps some of the questions we have presented have been answered in other bits of literature or other Brian Froud interviews, etc. Uh, we would love to hear from you about that. Uh, oh, and uh, well, as we're closing out here, I do want to give a quick shout out as well to uh, the Bazaar cast. That's uh, B A Z A A R. Uh, the Bizarre Cast with uh, Richard and Robert. Uh, they're uh, like a horror pop culture podcast. They recently had me on the show to talk about podcasting, about stuff to blow your mind, invention, and the upcoming transgenesis. Uh, so just a shout out to those guys. If you want to check out their show, it's thebazaarcast.podbean.com, or you can find them on Twitter, The Bizarre Cast, at The Bizarre Cast.
0: Huge thanks, as always, to our wonderful audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us directly, if you give us feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com.